to focusing on the dark side. And uh, boy, who wants to go to the dark side right now? But my hope is that it will only show the beauty and the power and the light all the more before we're done this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, you could open to Luke 11. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 23, Luke chapter 11. Howard, um, is this okay? Should I lift it up? Yes? I got permission. There we go. Okay. So Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. One day, about eight years ago, I was uh, walking out the front door of the church in Canada where I pastored at the time, and an attractive blonde, about 20, came up to me um, asking for help. She said she was hearing voices in her head, um, evil voices, accusing voices. They were tormenting her so that, that she couldn't think, she couldn't have peace. She had some sort of appreciation for Christianity, and, but, but whenever she, her thoughts turned to Jesus, these voices would shout, they would curse Jesus, they would rage inside of her, and, and she was exhausted, she was frantic, and she wanted to be free. As I talked with this desperate young lady, I also found out that she was regularly getting high on one of the party drugs that was popular at the time. And I also suspected from some things that she said that she might have a mental illness. So, so what about those voices? Did she have demons in her? Um, was it just the drugs talking? Or was she mentally ill? Or, or was it some combination of all of those things? Well, Christian, Christians today might approach this question from at least three different perspectives. Uh, some Christians are preoccupied with evil spirits. They see demons behind every bush, and they're quick to attribute every problem to Satan's influence. They're constantly rebuking or casting out the spirit of gambling, the spirit of alcohol, the spirit of falling asleep in church. <laughs> Other Christians are, are uncomfortable with that first, yeah, you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> other Christians, they're uncomfortable with that first approach. It, it seems ignorant and unenlightened to them. After all, since the days the New Testament was written, we've come so far in science and psychology and medicine, and we know there are biomedical and, and psychological explanations for much of what passed for demon possession back then. And so the second group of Christians, they, they write off what we read about demons in the New Testament as, as primitive man's attempt to understand experiences that, that we, they had no other way to understand, but we know better now. Well, still other Christians, a third group, and I think most of us would fall into this third category, aren't comfortable with either of those first two approaches. We, we certainly don't think there are demons behind every problem. That doesn't seem biblical, and it also doesn't seem true from what we know of psychology and medicine. But we're also not comfortable writing off the Bible's teaching on the demonic. After all, the Bible is God's word, and, and we believe it's trustworthy in describing to us reality as it really is. The Bible says that, that devils and demons are a real and active part of the world, and so we believe in them. But while we may disagree on a theological level with that second group, I think, truth be told, many of us live just like them in practice. 
We give little thought to the world of evil spirits. We, we live in an age which is so mechanistic, a world of, of hard facts and science, and we've been educated, we've been trained, we've been conditioned to focus on what we can see and what we can touch and what we can figure out. You know, even most Christian books today, books about ministry, focus on technique, and they give little attention to, to dark spiritual forces or how to combat them. So... For every problem and every occurrence, we've been trained to look for a logical and a material cause and solution. And to be honest, we, don't, we just don't give much thought to uh, the world of evil spirits. It's as if the evil spirits might have been active in Bible times, but, but they must have died out somewhere along the way, like, like maybe in the Black Plague or something. <laughs> Or maybe they exist somewhere far off in a jungle somewhere where it's uncivilized, but, but they don't come around these parts. Well, when C.S. Lewis, the renowned Oxford writer and professor, was reflecting on these options 70 years ago, he made this famous statement. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Well, I'd like to su uh, suggest that the Bible itself strikes the middle ground that Lewis is seeking for here. It gives us a healthy perspective on evil spirits, one which I hope that we can get into focus this morning. Because on the one hand, the Bible, it turns out, is not that interested in telling us more than we need to know about evil beings. In fact, it, it really tells us very little. The, the devil and, and his forces are only minor players on the pages of Scripture. But on the other hand, the, the Bible insists that spiritual beings, good and evils, are there, that they're very real. Well, given the changes that our church is going through and, and given our prayers and, and given our, our vision and our efforts to seek more of God's powerful and joyful presence and, and to step out more boldly and creatively in mission and to pursue all of God's plans and purposes for us, given all that, the Catalyst team thought it would be important for us to take some time to remind ourselves that there is another side to the spiritual battle and that we can expect counterattack. And it's not you-know-who, for you Harry Potter fans out there. <laughs> we can say his name. It's the devil and his minions. So we're departing from the Gospel of John a week early, uh, and we're going to take this morning to focus on this topic of spiritual warfare. So what does the Bible have to say about the devil and demons? Well, actually, contrary to popular belief, we don't know for sure where the devil comes from. The popular theory is that he was Lucifer, he was this beautiful archangel of light, perhaps in charge of worship, and, and he became proud and he became puffed up and he became jealous of God, and, and so he rebelled against God, taking a large number of angels with him who became his demons. This view is based largely on two passages of scripture, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which, which actually talk about the kings of Babylon and the kings of Tyre, respectively. But, but they do so in such exalted language that many people assume that Satan must actually be in view here. And, and that's possible, but, but that's somewhat speculative. All, all that we know for sure is that by the time God created humanity in the Garden of Eden, Satan was already there. 
The serpent was there in the garden. He appears on the opening pages of Scripture with no explanation, no background given, but rather just as a given reality. What the Bible does make clear is that Satan is not God. He's not co-equal with God. He's not eternal. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's a creature, originally, no doubt, created by God for some purpose. And in the Garden of Eden, Satan uses lies and trickery to get the man and the woman to doubt God's goodness and to rebel against God and to become God's enemies. As a result, God curses Satan and he foretells that one day a child of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And with that, we don't learn a whole lot more about devils or demons in the whole rest of the Old Testament. There, there's a passing reference in Job and in 2 Samuel. There are some allusions in the Psalms, some references to spiritual warfare in Daniel and Ezekiel. A few other things, but, but not a whole lot until Jesus comes on the scene. And then when Jesus arrives, you could say all hell breaks loose. Right off, Jesus is, is tempted by Satan in the wilderness and, and uh, <clears throat> Jesus prevails in that temptation and he returns then to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom. And what happens? Demons start popping up everywhere and, and everywhere Jesus has absolute authority over them. He silences them, he commands them, and he casts them out thus demonstrating to everyone his, his amazing authority. And that's the kind of occurrence which prompts today's story in Luke 11, right? Jesus drives out a demon of a, a man, or a demon who is mute, who, who has prevented a man from speaking. And, and when this demon is cast out, suddenly this man can now talk. And, and the crowd is amazed. But some say, no, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. Beelzebub, by the way, is another name for the devil. <clears throat> now, now, you have to realize just how powerful Jesus is. If you ever had someone or have someone, a, a loved one, um, who's contracted some kind of debilitating condition, maybe a, a physical disease, maybe a mental illness, maybe an addiction, and, and you've seen it ruin their life, and you've, you've, you've seen them literally waste away, and they've tried everything, doctors and, and therapies and, and treatments and groups, and nothing helps. And they just get worse and worse, and it's literally destroying them and destroying those around them. It's ruining their life. They're less of a person than they were before. And you feel totally helpless as you stand and you watch this unfold. That's what it's like for those who had demons. And it's true there were some Jews who, who tried to cast out demons by various means with, with lots of complex efforts and, and limited success. But here's Jesus. He just, he just now rolls into town and he speaks the word and the demons just, just go packing. And suddenly you have your loved one back. They're, they're free. They're, they're whole just like that. The nightmare has ended. It's an amazing miracle. Who is this Jesus? The, the demons were, were so terrifying. They were so powerful. They were so unbeatable. And, and with a word, Jesus has vanquished them. Jesus is even more powerful than the demons. Can, can you feel the, the sense of awe and power that these people felt when, when Jesus came on the scene and started setting people free? 
giving them their lives back. Well, Jesus' opponents can't deny this power, so they try to undermine and to discredit its source. They suggest Jesus gets his power from Satan himself. Jesus quickly points out what an illogical suggestion this is. I mean, why would Satan drive out Satan? Why would Satan give someone like Jesus the power to go around beating up Satan's own troops? It it makes no sense. And so in verse 20, Jesus concludes, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the point, isn't it? The point is that Jesus has come to roll back the tide of evil and, and to establish God's good kingdom on earth. Through Jesus, God is invading enemy territory. He's beating back the opposition. He's, he's reclaiming the captives who are under the devil's sway. And you know, this battle has a long, long history. It, we, we saw the conflict began between, um, on earth between Satan and, and, and God in the Garden of Eden. And, and when God had cursed the serpent at, at the end of that story, he then predicts that the conflict would continue not between, or not just between God and Satan, but between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is between God's people and Satan's people. And we see this human conflict played out through the rest of the Old Testament. Satan himself is seldom directly in sight, but, but the battle is there between Israel and the Egyptians, between Israel and the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Philistines. And in each case, God is right there fighting the battle. God is a warrior battling those who, who wittingly or unwittingly have sided with God's enemy, Satan, in opposition to God. And God is no respecter of persons. When God's own people turn on him and side with the enemy, God turns on his people and he fights against them. First through the Assyrians, then through the Babylonians who take his people into exile. So that's the whole history of of warfare that's, that's the background against which we need to understand the coming of Jesus. Jesus comes as a warrior fighting the same age old battle. But, but now the battle isn't a physical war it, like it was through most of the Old Testament. No, now it's moved to the spiritual plane. It's, it's as if um, God has pulled back the curtain of reality, reminding us that there's a spiritual dimension to all of this, that the real enemy is still the serpent, Satan and his demons who had been working behind the scenes all this time. And now in the person of Jesus, God goes after them directly, casting out demons right and left. Jesus' authority over evil spirits, his ability to cast out demons is a major sign. It's a major indication that the kingdom of God is indeed breaking in. That God is is now staging a a full-scale assault on the realm of evil and Satan can't stand against it. How does Jesus put it, verses 21 and 22? When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the plunder. Jesus is saying here to the Jewish people of his day, you may think Rome is the one oppressing you, but beyond the power of the Roman Empire, there's an even more evil, more sinister and more powerful strong man who has you captive. But do not fear, for I am even more strong than the strong man. I have come to set my people free and I have the power to do it. 
I have tied up the strong man, Satan, and now he is helpless to stop me from plundering his house. But how or when exactly did Jesus tie up the strong man? Well, some say that every time Jesus casts out a demon, he's, he's tying up the strong man and plundering his house. Other people say that Jesus' death on the cross is, is really when he ties up the strong man. And, and the casting out of demons now, earlier in his ministry, is just sort of a prophetic foretaste of what's to come. But I think I'm with those interpreters who suggest that Jesus' temptation was the moment when he tied up the strong man. Right after Jesus' baptism in the wilderness, Satan went after Jesus, didn't he? He, he tried to derail Jesus from his, his purpose, from his mission, or, or, to, or to get him to go about it the wrong way. But Jesus stood firm, right? He, he, he stood firm, and so Satan couldn't get at him. Satan was defeated there in the wilderness. Jesus had tied him up, you might say. So Jesus returned from that event in, um, in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come, casting out demons, healing the sick. Well, whatever you, view you take, the main point is clear, and that is Jesus is far stronger than the strong man. Jesus can and does bind and tie up and overpower Satan so that his house can be plundered and so that the captives can be set free. The old Christmas hymn by Benjamin Britten puts it well. This little babe, so few days old, is come to rifle Satan's fold. All right, so let's get practical. How does all of this relate to us today? Well, the main point is that we're in a battle. The kingdom of God is still breaking in, invading the kingdom of the enemy. And if we're about the business of God's kingdom, then we should um, expect spiritual opposition. Well, what forms might this opposition take? Let me briefly suggest six. First, the first major form that the spiritual opposition might take as we engage in the battle is temptation. That's how Satan got to Adam and Eve originally, wasn't it? It's how Satan first went after Jesus. And it wasn't just that one time. Satan later came to Jesus at a, at a key point in the, the uh, words of his close friend Peter, urging him not to lay down his life. Satan regularly tries to get us through temptation. And that's why the Lord's Prayer is so important. That's why I use it regularly as an outline for my prayers, because it reminds me to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Satan will tempt us any way that he can. If he can't get us to grow, uh, commit some gross sin, he'll, he'll go after more subtle sins. He'll tempt us into complacency, or, or he'll tempt us into self-reliance. Any way he can, he'll deter us from, from following Jesus. He'll deter us from seeking first God's kingdom. He'll deter us from taking up our crosses to follow Jesus and to serve and to love others above ourselves. Satan will um, try instead to get us to fall into self-pity or self-importance or to, to fall into that subtle arrogance that makes us touchy or makes us think that we know better and, and so we're offended if others don't give us our way or see things our ways. Any way he can, Satan will try to distract us from the way of Jesus, for, from the way of the cross, the way that Jesus taught us, the way of humility, the way of trust. 
to get us off focus, to trip us up, to get us to fall. And, and when we fall, then second, Satan will accuse us. You know, the devil means, the word devil means accuser. <clears throat> you see, there's nothing the devil hates more than grace. God's grace. God hates that God has chosen in Jesus Christ to wash away our sins, to forgive us, to, to treat us as if we'd never sinned. So what does the devil want to do? He, he wants to pretend that that grace stuff never happened. And, and, and he wants to heap up our sins and to throw them in our face. To, to mire us down in guilt and defeat. Because I don't know about you, but, but when I mess up, I, I can feel guilty. I can feel ashamed about it. Especially if, if, it's, a, if it's a gross, if it's a, a, you know, a flagrant sin. And so what do I feel like doing? I feel like running to hide, running to hide from Jesus. To run, to run and hide from, from, the, from the very one, from the only one who, who wants to forgive me and to cleanse me. Now, does that make sense? But it somehow makes sense when Satan gets in my head and starts accusing me. Satan wants to cut me off from the very one who wants to help me to get up and to do better next time. And so when you've messed up, whether, whether it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, don't let Satan accuse you. Get up as fast as you can and run to Jesus. Don't try to do better first. Don't try to clean yourself up first. But go to Jesus with your sin still dripping from you and let him clean you up. He's the only one who can. Don't fall into the Satan's accusation. Remember the gospel of grace. Now, if Satan can't tempt you and he can't accuse you, then third, he'll try to deceive you in some other way because deception is actually a big part of all of Satan's strategies. Because actually, Satan doesn't have to be powerful if he can fool you into thinking he's powerful. So, for example, let's say I meet you on a dark street. I don't have to have a gun to get you to do whatever I want as long as I can get you to think that I have a gun, right? We live in response to what we believe to be true. And so if Satan can control what you believe to be true, he can control you. And he's doing a good job of it. He's got over 100 um, cable channels now. He's got the internet. He's on and on it goes. Mark Twain put it well when he said, It isn't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know that isn't so. Well, if Satan can't attack you through your mind, then fourth, he may try to get you through your emotions. You know, about a year ago, I was going through um, a period of deep discouragement. I was so down, and even when good things happened, I, I didn't feel any better. And this went on for a while, and I just couldn't shake these deep feelings of dis discouragement. But eventually it struck me that there might be a spiritual element to this. I, I'm a little bit slow sometimes. <laughs> And do you know, as soon as I called on the name of Jesus and I asked him to take it away, the discouragement lifted like that after months of dealing with it. Now, it's not always that easy to get free from Satan's work in our lives, but that time it was. Well, fifth, if Satan can't get us any of those other ways, he might try to attack us through circumstances or to actually bring harm to us. 
for example, through tragedy or through persecution. In the book of Job, we read of Satan asking God for permission to harm Job. And God gives permission to a limited extent because God knows he will ultimately turn around Satan's efforts. He'll cause them to backfire, to work out for Job's good and for God's purposes. Satan can't harm us without God's permission. As Martin Luther once put it, he's God's devil and God has him on a chain. But God does allow Satan in this world a certain amount of leash, right? At times, because ultimately God is going to use it for his own purposes, for our good, for God's glory. Well, there are a lot of other areas we can look at. We don't have time to look at the whole area of principalities and powers and the, the way Satan influences systems and, and cultures and governments. But six, I want to quickly look at this area of being demon-possessed. You know, Christians argue about whether Christians can be demon-possessed as opposed to just demon-oppressed. And, and maybe that's not a helpful argument because, you know, the Bible doesn't even use the word demon-possessed. It uses the word literally, if you translate the Greek word that describes those who have demons, it's the word demonized. And so can a Christian be demonized? And if so, to what extent? What does that mean? Well, let's start by considering ways we might open the door to the deeper influence of Satan. Let me give you three ways. One is involvement with the occult. Um, Ouija boards, fortune tellers, astrologers, astrology, Wiccans, so many other things. You know, all that stuff is out there, and, and people, including Christians, dabble in it. In my last church, we had a lady who, um, both before and after she became a Christian, had continued on a few occasions to dabble in an occult practice as a way she was trying to get help for problems she had with a child. And, um, you know, she later came to realize to her horror that that child came to be under a powerful evil influence. And... They had to be led through a process of, of renunciation of those past involvements for that child to be free. So the occult is one way. A second way that we may open the door to Satan's influence is by continuing to believe a lie. Maybe the truth is that we can be verbally abusive to our family members. But we won't admit it. We, we lose our cool. And, and when, when we do, we tell ourselves there's always a good reason for it. You know, they, they deserved it. Of course, we'd never talk to people in church that way or around other people, but, but behind closed doors, the truth is we can be na downright nasty. Uh, but we tell ourselves it's okay. You know, they just need to be less sensitive. But we're living a lie. And, and into that lie, the father of lies can come. And third, a related way we can open the door is by refusing to submit an area of our lives to the lordship of Jesus. Whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our gossipy tongue, whether it's an addiction that we have, that sin, if not confessed and repented of, quickly becomes a habit. And then that habit becomes an addiction. And at that point, it, it's gotten really hard to stop. And Satan is in the process of moving in. Because we won't let Jesus in. So that area is safe for Satan. And then before we know it, we're in, we're in spiritual bondage and, and we can't stop that destructive behavior even if we try to. And at that point, we may need help from a deliverance ministry which has some experience in dealing with situations like that. 
And you know, in both churches I've pastored now, there have been people who were sufficiently in bondage that when they were set free, demons actually came out of people. Call it possession, call it oppression, either way, it's serious stuff. But remember, though Satan may be the strong man, Jesus is stronger by far. Jesus is far stronger, and Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God, to invade the kingdom of the evil one, to bind the strong man, and to plunder his house, to set the captives free. So here's the challenge. Are you awake to the spiritual battle? Are you equipped to fight the battle on on this level for yourself, for others? You know, whenever I baptize someone, I usually go over with them the ways that we can open up our lives to the evil one. And I lead them in renouncing and repenting of of any ways that they're aware of that, that they may have let the evil one in. Because once Satan gets a foothold in your life, making progress in the Christian life is trying to walk with a ball and chain shackled around your leg. And so right up front, as people enter the Christian life, I want to free them up from what could be years of of painful and exhausting frustration. Because it's very often unnecessary. Jesus is stronger than the strong man, and he wants to set them. He wants to set us free. If you feel that there's an area of your life where you're stuck spiritually, there's several people this morning who'd be willing to, to pray with you to give you some advice and counsel Uh, Joe and Sharon Vigilante and Ruth Schuster, Nancy McClure, and Ann Swain. They're going to be in the lounge just right after the service for a little bit. And if you want to come find one of them, they'll take take you somewhere private and confidentially pray with you, and the two of you could figure out together what maybe the way forward is. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that though we don't deserve it, although we never deserved it, you and your grace came. You came to set us free. You came that we could have life and have it abundantly. You came to make us fully human again. Thank you that you have bound up the strong man and that you delight in plundering his house. And I pray that, I thank you for those you have set free in this congregation. And I pray for any who long for a greater taste of that freedom, who need your powerful deliverance in their lives, that you would open the way, that you would move in, that you would make it possible. And if they struggle to let go with an area where they don't want to face the truth, they don't want to um, give up control of that area of your life, I pray that you'd give them the grace, that you'd give them the new heart to let go, to turn it over to you, and to let you surprise them with freedom and joy beyond what they thought they would experience by letting you be Lord. Amen.